Our scripture reading this morning, friends, comes from the end of Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It occurs to me as I sat down to write this sermon that one of the problems I have when it comes to these stories, particularly around Christmas and Easter and our major holidays, is that uh, we tend to sentimentalize them. Uh, when it comes to the story of Mary being told by the angel that she's going to give birth to Jesus, we have so over-sentimentalized it with our Hallmark cards and our, our cute little manger scenes and our preacher draw, preachers drawing these cheap little moral tales that the story almost becomes flattened so that it no longer scares us, and it also no longer awes us. Earlier this year, I read James Lewin's award-winning book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, where he argues that one of the reason high schoolers don't like the subject of history is because their textbooks have so flattened the stories that they've become essentially morally bland. And I think that that resonates in my experience as well with what we have done with Mary and the virgin birth story in particular. See, we assume that when the angel Gabriel approaches her that Mary's decision was easy and obvious. But that underestimates the cultural situation in which Mary found herself. It underestimates the political landscape in which Mary lived. It, underestimates Mary herself, who expresses incredulity when the angel shows up and reveals God's plans. Mary says, how can this even happen? I'm a virgin. This is a teenage girl who is arguing with an angel. So there's nothing about this that is easy for her to decide. This is not an easy decision. And I think that reality is often masked by how we tell the Christmas story. There is a tradition that is not in the Bible, um, but it is rather, uh, still rather intriguing to consider. The tradition that says, there's a tradition that says that Mary wasn't in fact the first woman that the angel Gabriel approached. That in fact Gabriel had approached many other women before Mary and each of them, once they realized the cost of what he was asking them to do, they turned him down. 
The tradition says that Mary was not the first person that Gabriel asked, but she was the first person to agree to do it. Because the cost would be so immense. We can't even make it to church consistently when it rains, but somehow we've convinced ourselves that this 15-year-old girl agreeing to give birth in a small town with a massive rumor mill was an easy decision. We struggle to pray regularly, but we think that uh, this girl who is growing up literally during times of uh, political colonization and political turmoil, that, that, that it was easy for her to say, yeah, I think I'll agree to bring a baby into the world. We who have too much to eat and drink, I think it was easy for a teenage mom who was herself living probably under starvation level to bring a baby into the world that she didn't even know how she was going to feed. And so I think our version of this story is far too sentimentalized. It's far too religious, such that we don't actually take the social factors and the political factors seriously. We're just sort of, if I can turn the phrase, we're living in the lies our preacher told us. But see, when we choose these lies, when we assume that stories like this were easy, the, these lies are almost intentionally designed to hide us from and protect us from the moral quandary of this story, lest we also be confronted with moral quandaries of our own when God comes to us and asks radical things of us. And it's because I think that these are moral quandaries for Mary, I want you to see that the question of what Mary is going to decide would not be determined at the moment the angel approaches her. Rather, it was determined in every moment that led up to that moment. Let me illustrate it this way. One of my favorite all-time fictional series is Pierce Brown's Red Rising series. It's a fantasy series set in the future where there's an elite group of society members who rule everyone else because they think it's their birthright. And in the course of the story, one of the bottom dwellers of society manages to infiltrate the ranks of the elite members of society. And from the inside, he is trying to spark a revolution. The story gets complicated from there, but the bottom line is toward the end of one of the books, uh, at some point, one of the other characters finds out that he is in fact from the bottom of society and that he's trying to start a political revolution. And so in this highly dramatic moment, this sort of critical climactic turning point in the book, the question is whether this other character who just found out the truth is going to decide to help him or is going to decide to kill him and thus obliterate the revolution. The protagonist of the story doesn't know what his friend is going to do, but the man who raised her responds by saying that the decision has already been made. It was made by how he raised her. 
He says this. He says, when I sat down before my heart, when I sat her down before my hearth as a child, as a girl, beside me and my children, what stories did I read her? Did I read them the stories of the Greeks, of strong men who gained glory for their own heads? No. I told her the stories of Arthur, of Jesus of Nazareth, of Vishnu, Strong heroes who wished only to protect the weak. He told her stories as a child that shaped her imagination, that shaped her morality, that shaped her decisions, that would shape a revolution. And this is my point with the Mary story. To shape, this is really the point of the Mary story, right? To shape our imagination to shape our morality, to shape our decision-making, and to shape a revolution in the world. God is not going to force us to make decisions that we don't want to make. God is not the kind of God to coerce us to align with God's will, just as God did not force Mary, or traditionally anyone before her, to do what God wanted. But what we decide to do, what our children decide when God comes to them, is determined not in the moment of decision, but in all the moments that led up to the moment. Think about this. After agreeing to carry this baby, Mary writes a song that calls for the downfall of the mighty. She writes a song that speaks of feeding the hungry and sending the rich away empty. She writes a song so politically subversive that it would get her killed if any Roman politician had heard her singing it. But her song is a cover. She's covering a song that was already written in the Old Testament by Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel. Mary's decision was shaped by a prior song and a prior story of a prior heroic mother who wrote already about the world being turned upside down. That story, that prior song, shaped her decision long before Gabriel ever showed up and talked to her. Or consider something that seems much more mundane than that. Her name is Mary. In the Hebrew, her name is actually Miriam. Miriam was the name of Moses' sister who helped Moses resist the enslaving politics of Pharaoh, who helped the people of Israel drop their chains of bondage and claim their freedom. Mary's parents knew this. They intentionally named her after a woman who helped lead revolution in the Old Testament. And the ties with her name don't even end there. Because in the first century, Jewish names that you will actually be familiar with, Jewish names like John, Simon, Judas, Salome, and Miriam were some of the most popular names from the period. Why? Because these names were not only tied, some of them, to the Old Testament, but they were not tied to intertestamental period, the intertestamental period 
of stories of revolutionaries who tried to throw off the shackles of the Roman Empire. They were people, heroes, who were celebrated for their revolutionary mentalities and actions. Miriam was the name specifically of a Jewish revolutionary woman who was killed by Herod around the year our Miriam was born. Her parents knew these things. They were shaping her from birth to be a certain kind of person long before she ever made the decision to carry Jesus in her womb. And so, yes, there is drama and quandary in this decision. This would not have been an easy decision for a 15-year-old girl to make by herself. But this decision was made long before Gabriel ever showed up and spoke a word to her. She'd been raised in a way that didn't resolve the dilemma in her heart, but it did determine what she would do. She was raised in a way that determined the decision she would make before she ever made it or was confronted with it. And she raised her son this way too. She raised her son Jesus on the heroic deeds of David, the wisdom of Solomon, the faith of Abraham, the visions of David, and the heroism of Esther. She raised him in a story that shaped who he would eventually become. In a world where Caesar is the Lord and Savior, she showed him a different story of kingship and lordship and saviorism that looks like servanthood and death rather than power and dominance. She showed him a radical, subversive kind of love. I named my daughters Phoebe and Junia for this exact reason. My wife and I didn't want to just raise girls. We wanted to raise certain kinds of girls. Phoebe, the name Phoebe occurs in Romans 16. She is a deaconess at the Church of Rome. She is probably the one who delivered the letter from Paul to the Romans, and she read or preached his letter out loud to them. She was a leader in a world that didn't want to hear the voice of women. Junia also appears in Romans 16, and she was an apostle, called an apostle by Paul. That is someone who saw the resurrected Jesus and preached and proclaimed that message, spreading the gospel all around the world. I am raising my kids to be people who, who participate in stories that are much bigger than them. It's why it shapes the stories I even read them outside the Bible. Stories about Katniss Everdeen and Harry Potter. But more, the stories inside the Bible. St. Paul, St. Peter, and most of all, the story of Mary's son, Jesus. I tell my kids stories that shape their imaginations, that shapes their morality, that shapes their decision, and hopefully will shape them into revolutionaries. I guess, I guess you could say that I have high hopes for my kids. I'm raising revolutionaries. People who see that Christmas isn't sentimental, but it's difficult and it's filled with moral quandaries. But I'm raising them to make decisions about those moral quandaries before they're ever even confronted with them. And all of this is intentional. 
so that one day when my kids are faced with a decision to follow God into the unknown and the dangerous, maybe even lose their jobs, they'll make a hard decision rather than an easy one. They'll make an unpopular decision rather than a popular one. They will make the world-changing decision instead of one that just maintains the status quo. And this decision will not be made in that moment. My idea is that that decision will be made in all the decisions that led up to that moment. Merry Christmas.